Royce is conceding. The West Side precincts came in and we pulled two out of five votes in some precincts. We stole his base. We won. <laughs> Are we happy about that? I think so. I think we are. Your daddy, he's still tall for them. I know, I know, he a soldier. Like father, like son. No doubt. You know about a murder? I do. You know, it's funny on this um, rewatch fan, I mean, I didn't realize, or no, I knew that he was, but I guess in this rewatch, I think this is the most I have enjoyed Randy, right? I mm. always thought he was a great character, but I had this thought, this takeaway after watching this episode in particular, is Randy the best of the kids? Because I think for so long, the narrative is always that it's Michael, but is it really Randy? I think actually in this season, it's definitely Randy. Mm -hmm. You know, going forward, we're going to follow the lives of the kids all the way until the end of the series. But in this particular season, uh, at least to where we are right now, there's a lot of mystery and intrigue surrounding Michael's character. But a lot of the emotional heavy lifting of this season is being done by Randy's character. That's an easy assessment to make, in my opinion, at this point. I think you're spot on about that. Yeah, because I think if you asked me before we rewatched season four to rank the most impactful kids, I think I probably would have gone Michael first, but I think that's just a reflexive thought because of what he, we know what he becomes, right? So I'm like, oh, right. it's Michael. And then I might have said Daquan. And then I might have said, I would have done Randy a disservice by ranking him much lower. His story, I think, is is so rich and much more emblematic and versatile than I think I actually gave it credit for. So I feel bad for how much I've sort of slighted Randy until this rewatch and realizing just how integral he was in that in that group of kids. Yeah, it seems like the rest of the kids are getting pushed to a situation to where they have to make decisions for themselves. And Randy is the one that's just getting caught in the riptide. And it really feels that way. And he doesn't have people who are very reliable reaching out for him, you know, Everyone else is going to get somebody to reach out for them and give them stability. Everyone is. Naaman is. Michael is. You know, even though that's not the kind of stability that most kids would really want to have or benefit from. And, of course, Duquan has Presbolewski uh, that is reaching out for him uh, right now. The person that has people coming to him, but for reasons that are completely exploitive right now was Randy and he's getting caught up in the overlap of so much dysfunction the dysfunction that's happening inside the school with the terrible principal who on this rewatch is one of the worst characters oh in the my history God. of the show she yeah, is on this rewatch she's fucking horrible and then you have you know the cops who are well meaning some of them in terms of Carver but who just don't have what they need uh, to be able to care for a kid like that. Yeah, Randy is very rudderless, and that's what makes his situation just so heartbreaking as we see it unfold. But yeah, I mean, the the, the principal, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, and I know we'll uh, talk about her probably a, a little bit more in depth, but I don't think I had realized how much of a villain and an awful person she was in the previous rewatches. I think maybe... It could be the bias of when it comes to education and teachers, you kind of give them a pass for a lot of things because they're teachers. They have a very important job. Generally, they're underpaid. Um, their schools are underfunded. You're a public school teacher. You're up against so much. So, you know, casting a teacher or educator rather as a villain just feels a little like something I'm not supposed to do necessarily. But just in, in all the scenes that she's in, like I, she's such a company woman. I was like, I it's, it's really kind of unbearable given and, and it more inexcusable. Like with the cops, you, you kind of understand why they're loyal to the institution as fucked up as it may be. An educator, you're just like, God, why? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you have to be there for the children. Right. Especially in a situation like these kids are in, you have to be there for the kids. And it seems like you said, she's more dedicated to the sort of machination of everything that she is to the lives of the kids. And it's just hard to watch at times. Man. Yeah, it is pretty painful. Um, So those are some of my kind of general observations. What other takeaways did you have from episode six, 
which is titled Margin of Error. Uh, yeah, so a lot of this was literally about the race, right? The race to be the next mayor of Baltimore, we see, but also, you know, in other ways, you know, Naaman's racing towards something now, towards a life he just doesn't, you know, really want to live. And this is a, a sort of a fast-moving episode that's all about people who are trying to get things that they think that they want, some things that they, they've they been told that they want, that they have to have, but it's all about the race to get there. You, you kind of see that a couple of different times. You know, watching season four, it's almost an interesting retake on the show, being that we come from, and I'm, I'm, maybe I've said this before, but maybe now we come from other moments in The Wire, other seasons in The Wire, where you have these big, grandiose scenes that stick out in your head that you never, ever forget. There are less of these in season four, and I'm seeing that the deeper we get in. Season four is more about the pure and overall narrative, right? And because of that, and because there's so many competing narratives, it's tougher, I find, in these seasons, uh, or in this season, should I say, to come around with a central theme to a show. Last, uh, in, the, in the, the seasons past, it has been obvious to me, it has jumped off the screen at me at what this show is actually about. These shows in season four more hint to you at sort of the common things that are going on in all of these different places. But these experiences are so vastly different. It's vastly different what's happening politically, what's happening in the, the police department and what's happening right now in the schools. It's, it's not as easy to thread the needle, but it makes for a just completely different watching experience. I think that season four, for a lot of people, is the best season because it's, to me, the most unique. you think that season two was the most unique because it moves you away from West Baltimore to a different part of the city. And I guess it's unique in that respect. But in terms of the theme and the rhythm of the show, I think season four is by far the most unique uh, of all of them, especially, you know, thus far. Yeah, because usually, like, there is a very clear, thorough line or through line, as they say, in, in the previous seasons where, okay, even though they're telling a bunch of different stories that are all interlinked, there's still one collective idea that's kind of bringing them together. Like you mentioned season two. Season two is all, to me, about uh, the downfall of the blue-collar worker, right? That That is like, yeah. it's built around that this idea that America used to be the place that made things. And once they stop making things, this is the collateral damage of what deindustrialization and global you know, a more global economy has done to a city. And, you know, it was about the working class and in particular the white working class, which, you know, obviously holds up well because, you know, people tend to act like the only people part of the working class are white people. So that was the through line. But with this one, I mean, you're telling the story of education and politics, but not in a way that's really relating them. And I think for another series that might be very ambitious and probably a failure, but because this is in a novel format, David Simon is able to pull it off. And this is not easy to do to tell these two competing stories. And I'm glad we're talking about it up top because in our trivia portion of today's show, I have some backstory about what this episode was supposed to be <laughs> versus what it actually became. And uh, you had mentioned that this was very heavy about the race, but there was a reason why this wound up being very heavy about the race. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, 
view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Uh, so with that, I'll get to the recap of what happened in today's episode or this episode rather. Um, so uh, Carcetti overcomes a last ditch smear campaign by Royce and also Clay Davis's uh, brazen thievery. <laughs> and he is now on his way to becoming Baltimore's next mayor after winning the primary over Royce and Tony Gray. Uh, Marlo pulls a fast one on Herc, um, which, you know, is not a surprise considering he's dealing with a mental, you know, I almost said the word that you're not supposed to say, the politically incorrect word, mm-hmm. right? Ah, but I caught right. myself. You caught yourself. Ah, look at that, 2020. Wokeness, wokeness one. That's right. Wokeness one. Uh, can I say a mental little person? Yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> a mental little person. Um, so he was stupid enough. Herc was dumb enough to believe. Why would he be so stupid to think that Marlo himself would actually usher the drugs in? Like, right. you know, I don't know if this deserves to be filed under the category of a we love this show, but, but has this fool not gone through a few major uh, drug investigation? Does he not realize that the main dude ain't never in the room with the drugs? Let me ask you a question. Let's say that Deion Waiters plays the next three years with LeBron James and Anthony Davis with the Lakers, right? And he sees the way you have to go win basketball games. He sees the way you have to conduct yourself to be a pro and stuff like that at that level. Let's say he stays there for three more years. Then LeBron and James leaves and Anthony Davis leaves. Do you think that Deion Waiters is going to start playing a more measured, calculated, no, he's not. <laughs> I love as that you compared they, Hurt as, to Deion Waiters. I think that's an as awesome soon, comparison. As soon as they leave, he will be himself again. What's really happened is there's been an incredible talent drain for major crimes, and not just a talent drain, but a drain of leadership. Like, remember, understand that if Freeman and McNulty, Daniels, and all of those guys are still in major crimes, they never even go to the train station. They're like, there's no way Marlo would ever be around guns or drugs. McNulty has said it before. He's not going to touch drugs or guns. It doesn't even make any sense to go. They would know that. The only person who would think, who would be arrogant enough to think that they're dealing with someone other than the same type of, same class of criminal that they have just locked up is Hurt, who's going to go, no, the guy's a mope. Let me go see and waste everybody's time and energy. So that's what you're dealing with. There's a talent drain from major crimes. And we're seeing that over the course of these episodes as well. So what you're saying is major crimes is now the Cavaliers after LeBron left. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes, so yes, what, that's who they are. Okay. I got you. No, that, <laughs> that makes all, all the sense in the world because Lord knows uh, Hurt could not find a ham sandwich if you left it in a paper bag. So that's just how he is. Uh, in other happenings in this episode. The Barksdale money line is drying up for Delanda and Naaman. And Delanda then decides, easy fix. I'm just going to push Naaman to the corner. He's just going to be just like his daddy. And we'll get more into Delanda because that's who we're going to take a character deep dive into. Omar gets arrested for murder, just as Marlo planned. Uh, He's now in jail and in the unusual position of being the hunted rather than the hunter. Uh, Bunny uh, and the University of Maryland professor, they finally began their study of corner corner boys and corner girls, their behavior. They've segregated um, a number of students who are problem students, including Naaman, Zenobia, and Darnell. Um, And, you know, who, and this is going to become a much bigger storyline as we go forward. Uh, Randy's world is rocked when his um, lookout come up goes Horribly wrong. Um, The young lady that went into the bathroom with Randy's two acquaintances has now accused them of rape. And because he is desperate to get out of this trouble and to also stay in the good graces of his foster mother, he confesses to knowing about a murder. And uh, Prez takes that situation uh, to to Daniels. And then it comes goes on to Carver. And there's a lot that happens as a result of this sort of chain of passing this problem off. There was another question I had. 
if you're Prez, right, why the hell didn't he take that to Lester? I mean, he's been working with Lester. Like, he knows Lester is a... I, I'm not saying this. I know that Daniels has a special place. Um, you know, Dan, in, Daniels in a, is an administrator. He's an administrator, and I get it. And Daniels yeah. has certainly done right by him. He's covered for him. Before he basically left the force, Daniels was the one who only seemed to care about his well-being and was one of the few people that didn't see him as a total fuck-up. But I, part of me wondered, like, why would he take that to Lester? You know? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I just think that in that situation, him having been gone from the force for a little while, you know, he's not there knowing what everybody is doing. He probably trusted Daniels to give appropriate marching orders and the appropriate assignments on that. That's why even when he said Carver, he goes, Carve? It's like Ellis has come a long way, you know what I mean? So, But he's trusting Daniels to know exactly how that should play because, you know, Daniels is one of the guys, he's a boss. Yeah, I'm sure he was also thinking that if he needed a special favor, that he better call on a special favor from somebody who might have a little bit of of muscle and pull as opposed to, you know, Lester. But I, there was a part of me that just thought, like, you know, considering, I felt like he might have been much more likely to trust a fellow, somebody, like, on his level than trusting somebody higher up. Uh, just a thought, though. Okay, uh, now with that, we turn to our character deep dive as we talk about Ms. Delanda, who is... In the top five of worst television mothers everywhere, and she's not five. Yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> she's high. I rank her this? above Florida Evans. And y'all already heard my Florida mm. Evans is a bad mother hot take. Delanda's decidedly worse than Florida Evans. Although, I bet you Delanda wouldn't con- convince uh, Naaman to sell out to the white man, but that's just me. Probably would. Yeah. Probably would. Bootlicker. <laughs> so what is it about Delanda that, that makes her so horrible? Among the many things. <laughs> so I had therapy this morning, right? Which is why I'm so mellow. Normally I have therapy on Thursdays, guys. But I had to have therapy on Friday today. And right after therapy, I'm very zen. I'm very zen. I had therapy this morning. I got a haircut. You know, I, noticed. A I noticed. See that? Yeah, yeah. man. I, got my, I, got, I told him to go ahead and give me the Eric Snow. Because the hairline is going. Remember how Eric Snow was able to extend the life of his hair for at least five more seasons by just having the shadow of hair on top of his head. I am not Jalen Rose. This is the best it's going to get. Okay. Um, So my therapist said something that was very interesting. Shout out to Coley Williams, therapist. She said about childhood. Childhood can be like Walmart um, or it can be like Hugo Boss in terms of the stores. Oh, please tell me more because I'm dying to know where this is going. She's talking about parents who are involved. Right. So she's talking about parents who are involved. So not if you have parents who are absent. She's talking about parents who are involved. So in a Walmart type parental situation, you walk into a home and you have everything that you need, but you have to get it yourself. Right. So you walk into a home, you're protected, you got enough food, you got enough water, you got enough entertainment, you got enough all of those things, but you have to go and get it yourself. You have to get it off yourself. You're left up to your own devices. We've put everything there for you. You go grab it, right? And in a Hugo Boss store situation, Hugo Boss, which has Nazi roots, but whatever. Uh, in a Hugo Boss situation, as soon as you walk into the store, you're cared for, you're coached, you're told what looks good, you told, you're told what looks good on you. Someone says, hello, here's your champagne while you're waiting. We're going to make this as easy. And then also when you leave the store, they email you. They check on you every now and again. Hey, we haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? Come back. You know, they're cultivating a relationship and making you comfortable with things, right? Those are the two different sides. Most people, most people get the Walmart parenting, right? Your parents take care of it. But there's a select few kids out there who get the Hugo Boss experience where a parent is looking at not only providing you with things, but fitting you for them, telling you how they work out for you, giving you a holistic view of the world, right? Naaman is in the most Walmart fucking childhood ever. He got a super Walmart childhood. He got everything you would think that a kid would need. And all the other kids are starving. Naaman is fed. All the other kids are bummy. Naaman is clean. All the other kids are rich, or poor, should I say. Naaman is rich. That's how it is. But he doesn't have any of the care. 
He doesn't have any of the attention to detail because his mother is self-centered. When you go up to those Walmart employees, you know what? They doing some other shit. God bless them. Nobody works harder. Go up and ask somebody what a goddamn clam chowder is, if that's the kind of shit you look for. You know what they doing when you're asking them them questions? They opening up boxes. You know what I mean? Almost they always, stuff, yeah. Yeah, almost. They open it. They putting stuff out. They doing stuff. They don't have people just floating around. They say hello to you, and then they say, go in there and find your shit. You know what I mean? So Delonda is too busy opening up boxes to realize what her son is or who her son is. She cannot grasp who this person is. She's living with a stranger. More than that, she's living with a memory. And that memory is of Webay Bryce. Webay Bryce, one of the hardest pieces of muscle, one of the hardest hitters that West Baltimore ever has known. That guy's in jail. And he ain't coming back. He gone. He gave up people's lives for pit beef. So he's going to be there for a while. Now, what you could do is deal with the boy that is actually in front of you or deal with the ghost that is actually in your past. And she's choosing the latter. And that choice that she is making is hampering Naaman, but it's also holding her their entire family back. I actually think that you were being kind by, by saying Walmart. If it is Walmart, it's like Walmart at 3 a.m., you know, because yeah, that's a whole right. different version of Walmart. Yeah, it's, it's spooky. Yeah, that's Walmart after dark, and like, yeah. yo, that ain't yeah. the same Walmart. Um, because nah. I was, I was like, I was like, shit, I don't, even, I wouldn't even give it Walmart. I'd be like, that shit is like Family Dollar. Like, the things you need are theoretically in there, but the aisles is unorganized as fuck. <laughs> you know, shit ain't where it's supposed to be. You can never get any customer service, and it's like, yeah, you'll leave there, and you might have like ten cleaning products for twelve dollars. But you don't feel good about the experience having been in there. Actually, you feel worse about yourself. Shout out to the people at Family Dollar, too, because they know. They'll be like, what you ask? It's a dollar, nigga. <laughs> right. Go find it. You know what I mean? Like, like it's I'm only not, so they, much effort they're going to exert uh, when the yeah, shit is like a dollar, a dollar fifty, I'm, maybe. I'm not coming out here for that. Get out of here. <laughs> And so that's kind of that's kind of what that's kind of what it is that they do. Yeah. So you know, uh, and by the way, I I I fuck with it. I can dig it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like I don't go into Family Dollar expecting to get Hugo Boss service ticket. I look; these people have been working hard. Um, they barely want to be up in there, and I don't blame them. Okay, especially yeah. considering how some of the customers sometimes act in there. So I'm trying to make it as stressless as possible on them because I know they dealing with some bullshit. But right, you know. Delanda, um, you know, uh, in reading the backstory, Sandy McCree is the actress that plays uh, Delanda Bryce. And if I've met Sandy McCree in real life and she is one of the nicest, sweetest, kindest people you have ever met. And even Julito, who plays Naaman, he even says in All the Pieces Matter in the book that he could not believe how she was able to turn on this entirely different person playing <laughs> Delilah Rice because he was just like, she was the, say what I said. He was like, she is literally the nicest woman I've ever met. And when she turned into Delanda, she turned into every worst possible version of what a mother should actually be. Like, I think that Penny's mama in good times was probably like, not as bad as Delanda Bryce. And Delanda didn't no. fuck him up with the, na- with the iron. You can't. No. Dude, I'm no. T- no, she burned her with an iron, dog. That was Come fucked on, up. Man. That was fucked she up. Burned, but hear like, me she out, burned though, her man. with an iron, But hear dog. me out, though. Hear me out, though. Like, <laughs> At least, I mean, y'all know if you remember this part of it, right? Okay, so... Little Janet Jackson. <laughs> no, mama, no! <laughs> uh, she burned her with an iron, man. Okay, that was fucked up. I'm not here yeah. to cape for that, right? Obviously, right. child abuse, very bad. But what you right. forget is... Her mama tried to come back and get her back from Walona. And she was sending her like really expensive gifts through this dude that Walona was dating that she thought he was just paid. And he was buying her new beds and all that shit. And it turns out that he was in cahoots with Penny's mama. And she tried to set Walona up and make it seem like she was an unfit parent so she could get Penny back. See, Delanda wouldn't do all that. She'd be like, we know what Delanda would do. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to give away the rest of it or whatever. But I'm just saying, at least she tried to get pity back. She tried to make amends. She was just shitty, okay, and a terrible person. Uh, 
Look, you guys got to go back and watch Good Times. for the If you guys haven't watched Good Times, Penny's played by young Janet Jackson, right? Young Janet Jackson was on Good Times. Walona is, of course, the family friends to Evan's family. And Penny was getting beat up. It wasn't just one time. No, Penny, it was multiple Penny, occasions. Penny was getting that ass tanded, as we say about that. That ass tanded to her. All right, that ass tanded. Getting your ass tanded to you. That's what we say back home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I'm from. Had to get it in for this podcast. And, and so, yeah, I would say Delonda was bad. And I don't even remember that part you're talking about. And maybe that does, that does factor into it. I got to admit, I don't She I did come remember. back. She, did, she came she back. back. She tried to, she had married a rich man and she was like, see, now I'm in a better position. I could provide. I'll be less of an mm-hmm. asshole. I mean, she was a total asshole because her trying, she tried to set Walona up and make it look like she was having this wild swinging drug party. See, even all of that, all of that <laughs> is very, very devious. It's too much. It I, is, I, but I'm like, a, you know, it I'm came from Delonda. a good place. But I, another thing about Delonda is that like, some of this doesn't even have to do with parenting that she's doing something in parenting that you should never do, which everyone does, which you should never do. If there's one thing in the world that should be free of ego, it should be parenting. Parenting has to be the most selfless thing that you do to be done right, right? And I'll tell you why I know this. I know this because I've been around a lot of young kids, right? I don't have any kids. But all of my family and my homeboys have them. My homeboys decided they were going to give up their lives early and start having kids at 21 or 22. And that's what they did. I love those guys. I will be around these kids. Van Lathan Sidebar. I I, I have to tell you guys something right now. There's no way y'all like these fucking kids. (laughs) There, there, There is no way. You're lying. It's a lie. These kids are older now, and I'm delighted by them. I'm delighted by Cy. I'm delighted by Brooklyn. I'm delighted by Amari, Leah, RJ, all of them. Okay, I'm delighted by all of my little nieces and nephews. Okay, Amaya, all of them. I'm delighted by them. Not when they were kids. When they were kids, it was a fucking joke how horrible they were. It's a joke. I'm sitting down and I'm playing Halo 2. My beautiful niece, Amari. She comes in there. She says, Dora. And I'm like, what's that? She's like, Dora. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she just screams, Dora! I put Dora the Explorer on. It's not like she can just sit there and watch Dora the Explorer quietly. No. Got to sing the songs. Got to go Boots. Every time Boots is on the scene, swiping, no swiping. All the thing. And you don't have to just watch Dora once. You got to keep running it back, running it back. So what happens? I get sick of this, you know, I'm sick of Amari right now. She's beautiful, cute, delightful to look at. Can't handle it anymore. I'm sick of it. I get up and I go to Izzo's Illegal Burrito, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was our version of Chipotle, except it had cheese, queso. I'm a big boy. I like it. I come back. She's got the TV. I'm figuring she's good. As soon as I walk in the door, she looks at me. Chips. <laughs> so she doesn't know how to like ask for things. It's no, just like she, demands. Ain't no, ain't no ask. I don't know. You, you don't. You ain't been around these kids. You're about to turn me to Kanye. Yeah, you, you like you ain't been around these kids. Ain't no ask. Ain't no ask. She looked at me and she said chips because she knew it was tortilla chips in the back. I tried to go upstairs. I ran from the baby. I tried to go up. Like I, I tried to go upstairs. I tried to go up the stairs. She's, she's like, she's crying, chips, chips, chips. And then I'm sitting down, right? I'm sitting down, watching Dora while this baby is creasing my chips. When I say creasing my shit, like, and then got cheese all over her hands, I'm like, God damn, little nigga, you a savage. <laughs> like, you with the shit. So look, that's why I say, all of you people that are parents, y'all got to be off the chain with it because y'all know y'all don't like these kids. So D- Delonda coming through everything that she came through to get to this point, to get through all of that with him and still be putting herself in it, 
I wonder how much of that stuff she went through because it seems to be more about her. And remember, that's why I had to learn. I have to learn with Amari. It's not about, it's not about me. It's not about the baby needs. The baby needs Dora. The baby needs chips. The baby needs, it's not about me. It's about her. And that's why I learned about kids. It's not about you. It's about them. But with Delonda, it seems like it's about her and not about naming. Bad parent. Yeah, no, she's she's awful, but uh that selfishness. Um, and by the way, did 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 she eat all your chips? Like she ate the chips. Here's the thing. It even it gets worse because you know what she did? Because I, first of all, as the uncle, I don't have a high cry tolerance. Like her mom and her daddy be like, no, that's enough. Get off me. And then she'll be crying and they'll be taunting her. I don't hear that shit. <laughs> Ah, uh, because remember, they went through all of this crying right. already. Like she was crying when she was a little baby, going ham, crying. It's like, I don't hear that, man. I'm about to put on Stevie Wonder. I don't even hear what you're talking about. Ah, uh, but see me, I'm not used to that. Look, look what you hear right now. Silence. That was silence. Yeah. That's what I'm used to. So when the baby starts crying, I'm like, yo, dog, how do we make her stop? This is wild. You hear them octaves? So for me, eventually what happened is I never take the chips, right? At least at that point, I never take the chips. She eats the chips until she can't have any more. And then guess what she does? Oh, something, something bodily function happened. She throws up. Yep, I knew it. I knew it. I was like, either she threw up or shit her pants. It was one of the two. <laughs> so think about what a bad night that is for me. No halo. I was in fat boy heaven. Halo or burrito and chips. No halo. Cartoons. Chips are gone. Baby puke. It's all bad. But that's being a parent. And later on, I learned how to deal with my little niece and look after my little niece, take care of my little niece. My little niece is a beautiful, I think 17-year-old woman right now. It's gorgeous. Volleyball player. Stay far away from her. I'll fuck you up. <laughs> but like the re- but but the the re- the reality of the situation is that's what parenting is. It's a selfless act. It's a selfless thing. And Delonda is literally one of the least selfless. She's one of the most self-absorbed characters we have in the show. So there's it makes sense that she would be a bad parent. Yeah, I mean, she is not only selfish. Um, like there is, we've definitely seen a lot of instances, um, you know, particularly celebrities, athletes, where they push their own insecurities, their own dreams onto their children because they are trying to live through them. So that happens on a regular basis. It's just a much different scenario, uh, a much different scenario when the dream you're trying to live through your child is them being a kingpin. Like that's all, right. that's a totally different thing. Like if she was just, she if she went this hard in the paint because Naaman was six six and she wanted him to be the next NBA player, that'd be one thing. But her entire wish and dream for her own child is you need to be like your daddy. And I'm like, right. your daddy who is serving a life sentence because he got more bodies on him than the fucking morgue. Like that's yes. that's not the Con- same thing. Could confess to murder for a pit beef sandwich. That's the you you want to get over that. You don't want him to be that. But you're you're absolutely right. It's not like she's a tiger mom get, who's too tough on him doing his math homework. She wants this nigga to be out here clapping people. You know what I mean? It's just, it's it's very interesting. And like a lot of ways, it shows that in all the dysfunction that we've seen, there's also social dysfunction, just a dysfunction and a misunderstanding fundamentally of things that should be nurturing and reassuring to people who you love. There's dysfunction all over the place inside of the home and in those interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, whenever Naaman is always trying to, to to front and seem tougher than he actually is, all he's doing is imitating his parents or trying to be and live up to the type of person that they want him to be. I thought two, two of the best scenes in this episode um, that involved uh, Delanda was when uh, you know, you want to talk about bad mother on bad mother is when she, her and Naaman went to see Brianna. There's nothing more I can do for you. They know everything. You forget that? And what's he going to do? Who's he going to tell? And what do I care if he does? Bay never heard me say a damn thing about business. What about your brother? Avon could be gone long if Bay gets to speak in his mind. I couldn't care less about Avon. Right? Yeah. I mean, Brianna was a different type of bad mother. 
right? I mean, yeah. she was definitely supportive, if you will, loving toward D'Angelo in the in the in what we know of their relationship. But she was still doing the same thing in the sense that she was pushing him into this drug game really for her own comfort and the comfort of the Barksdales, period. You know, that same selfishness that you're talking about was there. And it was very telling when um, Brianna and Delanda, you saw two sides, two sides of the same coin. The difference is just one is just a lot more aggressive in her attitude than the other one. But they both wound up they're both making the same mistake. And as a result, Brianna's uh, son, D'Angelo, he's dead because yeah. of it. Because she was mm-hmm. the one that wanted him to do all that time for the family. It was her. Right. She sent him to prison yeah. where he was eventually murdered um, at the call of, of of Stringer Bell. And I'm like, I was thinking to myself watching them together. I was like, who is actually the worst mother in this scene? I, 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 I don't... Mm. That's a tough one, man. I don't know. Like, <laughs> between Brianna and Delanda, like, who is the worst mother? I would say Delanda, and I'll tell you why. I think Brianna has a little bit more naivete to her. She is very on top of it in terms of the inner, the inner workings of the organization. But there are some things that she believed that she was just mistaken about. Like she didn't think that Stringer would have done what he did. You know, she thought that no matter what, D would be protected in terms of. Uh, his safety because of the relationship with Avon. She really didn't think. She thought that the the view of family that she had, that Avon had, kind of permeated throughout the organization and that that in and of itself would keep D safe. She really didn't think that that would have happened. Meanwhile, Delanda kind of has her eyes open in terms of what the realities of all these things are and just chooses to still act in a way that's completely self-serving. So while it's very, it's razor thin, I'd say that uh, I'd say Delanda was probably the worst mom. So in All the Pieces Matter, they give a tiny little backstory, or at least um, I think this is the backstory that that Sandy McCree, who again plays Delanda, was working with, is uh, her and Weebe actually met in foster care. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, right. So this is something that I, I did not know was a part of their backstory because, I mean, which her being a foster kid makes sense because there's a bitterness and a hardness in Delanda that is obvious where... Whatever has happened to her in her life, she has so little optimism, so little faith, and so much hardness that it had to be something that was extremely traumatic. That's not to say that we should take it easy on her because of that, but like this is where the place of that bitterness is coming from. And Sandy McCree talks about how that's what she wanted um, to be. That's why she wanted this to be a part of this character. She wanted you to never think that she even had a soft side because she feels like somebody that grew up in those circumstances would not. Um, And to your point about the whole Walmart analogy, uh, her characterization of her parenting is she just carried, uh, as she puts it, she just carried that child in her womb, but she didn't know anything about love and she wasn't passing on any love to her child. And I was like, well, that's a pretty accurate description of who she is because she is protective of naming only if it serves her, right? Because the whole reason she rose up on Bodhi and fights for Naaman is she's not actually fighting for Naaman. She's fighting for her comfort. And so she has no compunction about rolling up on, you know, a drug dealer and just basically getting him or forcing him to uh, give Naaman a package when Bodhi is looking at her this whole time. Like, do you even know who your son is? Even he knows Naaman more than she does. And he knows he's not equipped to be the type of person that could run his own corner. And it's right. only out of loyalty that he actually does it. And I thought Bodhi had a great line when he told Naaman after their whole confrontation was over with. And he said, Damn, boy. Your mom's what niggas call a dragon lady. Yeah, she don't blink. Yeah, it gave me some insight, though. To what? Why you is what you is. Yeah, yeah. Last thing I'll say about her is it's interesting that you say that about the foster kid because you know what that also means? If they met in foster care and she was down and out and she he was down and out, uh, that means that Bay wasn't just her companion. Bay was her savior. Right. 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 Every, everything that Bay did out there rescued her from the life that she was living when she met him. So she doesn't look at Bay as just her partner. She looks at Bay as the guy and that lifestyle as the thing that 
put her in a position in a place that she could have never imagined she was probably going to be in. Having nice things, having a nice place, being respected, you know, being needed, which Weebae was. The one thing that, uh, that, well, not the one thing, but one of the things that they get from being in organizations like that, be them gangs, be them whatever, is they have a feeling of, of usefulness and purpose. Gives them something, someone cares about them, someone needs them, someone has to, to be there for them. So all of those things that, that she got, she got them from who Weebae was. And she might feel that in order to get them again, that Naaman has to be Weebae. Because remember, in her life, she hasn't seen a different way that it works. She's seen one way, you know? And so she can't really think about him as a foster kid. The only thing she's ever had to think about is herself. So that's a very, very key piece of information right there. You know, and I don't know if you had this feeling maybe the first time you watched The Wire. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't ever remember even a passing reference that Weebae had a child. No. Like this was a, this is a whole situation was a complete surprise. And even if you recall when D'Angelo was thinking that, um, and I think back in season one it would be, is when D'Angelo, it was either one or two, when D'Angelo was thinking that Weebae was about to kill him and he, and he was just really trying to tell him how to feed his fish, there was no evidence that he was living with a woman. You know what I'm right. saying? Like there was no, mm-hmm. there was like literally nothing. And maybe they weren't living together. I don't know. Right. But there was no indication whatsoever that, Weebae had somebody uh, with Naaman is in eighth grade. So like that he would have possibly had, you know, somebody in this age group as a child. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. it was, even though the whole storyline was a bit out of left field in the context of the series, I think it still paid off because given the entire totality of, of season four, that it wasn't one of those things where it was so out of left field that it just like kind of didn't fit. But I was thinking about that like, man, they really brought this storyline out of left field and, and still made it work. All right. Um, now, before we dive into some of our favorite scenes, as we do every episode, and also uh, later on, we'll cover some of the best fathers away for later moments. Um, real quick, Van, let's hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink. With seven rewards, it's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms. All rights reserved. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Van, now we're at the point where we're going to talk about some of the best scenes and moments in Margin of Error, episode six. Uh, what did you have down? Let's do it now. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, Brianna and Delanda, when they talk right there, it's a great scene. Uh, Brianna tells uh, she Delanda that the faucet is off. There's no more money, which I was wondering about. Yeah. I was wondering where the money's coming from. They made a lot of money, though. So they made a lot of money. If you think how much Avon and them were probably making. Was he making like a meal a week at one point? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Something like that. So there's probably a lot of money. When she says that the money's run out, she's probably talking about the money for them. Right, not for everybody. <laughs> not for everyone. She's probably talking about the money for them has run out. But I, I would imagine that uh, unless, d- depending on what the government got, that Avon, you know, Avon probably made enough money in the time that he was doing his thing for them to be comfortable for a long while. Yeah, and, and what was really interesting about that scene is remember when she brought up Avon and Brianna, the look of coldness, and she was like, I don't care what happens. Tell him, I don't care. I don't care what happens to Avon. And that tells you right there that she has now finally believed and taken it as a reality uh, that Avon and Stringer, that Avon either directly or indirectly, uh, had D'Angelo killed. So we know the reality that Avon actually did it in an indirect way. He didn't really do it, but it was done for him. And he was kind of uh, complicit she, because he obviously never told Brianna what uh, what really happened. Right, right. So Prez and Duquan, when he gives him the system for him to wash his body, great little scene. Yeah. For him to like take a bath and... And do the whole thing. Now that's gonna that gives Zuquan some humanity. He's gonna be able to come to school. He's gonna be able to 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 shower, to brush his teeth, to be clean every day. And that alone should make his life exponentially better. It shows you that Prez is doing something that sometimes you have to do, which is investing into the life of these kids. He is being sort of a Hugo Boss type of parent. Mm. He's taking it like. You think about that. When we talk about the, Le- the school that LeBron opened up, right? Consider this. The school that LeBron opened up out there in Akron, right? Obviously, it's a top-notch educational situation. But it's also a situation where he provides transportation, where there's a food bank, where there's a GED program for the parents because he, re- he realizes that the problems of those kids aren't specific to things that are going on in the classroom. There are structural problems that you have to address there, too, if you want to get the best album. And Press saw that uh, real quick. Marlo's scheme. I love that whole deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Marlo sets the cops up. I like Randy being in the, uh, being a part of Carcetti's ground game. That's cool. And uh, Two more. And this, the last one to me, uh, three more. The last one to me is the best one. Cuddy with Michael in the gym. Great scene. Right. Michael calling out Cuddy. Yep. When he's like, hey, man, the reason why... You ain't seen spiders because you, you're a man whore. That's why. Right, you're basically a man whore. Yep. Uh, when Omar is being hunted, that's a great scene as well, Omar the Hunted. But I'm going to be honest with you. The best scene to me is the scene between Randy and the principal. When the principal is pressing Randy over what happened to the young lady who is now claiming that she was raped uh, because she's been humiliated at school by these guys that she had the sexual liaison with. The reason why that's the best scene is because that scene to me is indicative of the adults in the room not understanding the stakes for the kids and also of her complete cold allegiance to law and order as far as the school is concerned. There's this one person in that scene is completely human, completely vulnerable, begging, merciful, and the other person is just brick and mortar, just like completely cold. Even on her face, there is absolutely zero empathy for him. Either she's heard so much of this that she thinks she's being played or whatever app extra thing you need to really care about someone, it's not there for. So when I saw that scene, that scene to me was just, just sort of, emblematic of everything that the school narrative is is trying to put across in the show. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the thing about that, too, is it reminds that that scene with the with uh, Mrs. Donnelly. I can't help but go back to the scene a few episodes ago when Randy first started 
she first started pressuring him to snitch on whoever it was that tagged the walls. And Cuddy looked over him as if he's trying to tell him, don't say shit. Like, you have no idea what you might be about to get yourself wrapped up in. So we go from that to then all of a sudden him just diamond on everybody because he's trying to save himself. And understandably so, that's not a criticism. But it just kind of goes to show that, you know, for kids like him who have to navigate this world where them sort of doing the right thing only pays off with the most terrible consequences. And the fact that she, as an adult, and as somebody who seems to have been in this school for a minute, she knows these kids. I'm thinking, how do you not understand that asking somebody in Randy's situation to basically play a snitch is that you're putting his life on the line? Even her decision to call the police is like, you're putting his life on the line by doing this. And yeah. considering the lack of resources you have in your own school, what makes you think he could be possibly protected with any information that he might know? I also thought, uh, who do you think is in a worse situation, Randy or Naaman? That's a good question. I'd say Randy. The reason why I'd say Randy is because at least Naaman has people who are protecting him. Randy seems to only have judges in his life. People that are judging him for being a snitch. People that are judging him as a student. People that are judging him at home. And users, seems, too. Like, people who are users, using him. Me. Actually, users is a better word. Users is a better word. He seems to only have users. Uh, Naaman ha- is being used as well, but they don't want to over-exploit Naaman because fear of the word that Baker put on the street. Naaman is at least part protected, and Randy just seems completely exploited. Hmm. Yeah, no, uh, there is definitely a difference, but I realized in seeing their situations play out that I was like, man, both of these kids are in some tight situations. Uh, In terms of scenes that I thought were really good, Carcetti turning down sex. What? From the campaign manager. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because like as much of a narcissist as Carcetti clearly is, he has these moments where you're just, you know, it makes you almost want to believe that he's not the same old bullshit politician. Like, uh, of course, we've, up until this point, we've definitely seen him be unfaithful to his wife. But it's as if being the mayor or being, you know, right on the cusp of being the mayor, that that shit hit him differently. Like he started to understand, I got a bigger responsibility and I just can't get caught up in the same dumb shit that I'm used to doing. So I thought that was like a real growth moment for him. Uh, Another good scene, speaking of Carcetti too, is when he found out he won the primary when him and his wife were walking along the harbor. And it was interesting that when his wife asked him, are you happy with this? He kind of had to think about it. Like he didn't know if he was really happy with this. Um, You know, and um, I think that he kind of even showed before he found out he won that he actually does care about the city of Baltimore when he was looking across the harbor and talking about what the city could be. And he said, hey, the city could be great again. In that moment, it's like it, it seemed like he was in this for the right reasons, even though he obviously ran for mayor as completely a political play. He didn't I don't think he at first expected to win. And he just kind of got there and was like, well, shit, I'm gonna go with it. But there is some part of him that does like or at least that does enjoy being a public servant for all the right, you know, reasons. So also another little sm- a small scene that um, I noticed that was uh, too on the funnier side is when uh, Omar is in jail and his new muscle, courtesy of Butchie, uh, when, when he asked one of them what you in for, he said, I talk back. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the look on his face and the meanness, he was like, damn, well, what did you say? Because I can see right. just based off your demeanor why that might wind wind up in here. And uh, also the uh, the casual racism of the friend of Carcetti's father that they ran into on the street, him and Norman. Oh, I, I got that one for later for something. But yeah, yeah. that scene, that's a good mm. scene. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, hello, casual racism. Yeah, nice right. n- nice that you still exist. So uh, anyway, people, those are some of our favorite scenes. Um, now let's move on to what aged the best for you, Van? Casual racism. Oh, there we go. Casual racism. Uh, but was it really call- that casual? I'm like, now that I think about it. <laughs> not calling out your friends, white people, uh, when they say stuff like that. It's like, what am I supposed to say every time? Like, yeah, yeah. Yes, every time you are, actually. Yeah, if I'm, like, I was on the phone with somebody yesterday, and they were trying to be funny, and they said the T word uh, for 
transgender oh, Americans. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. All and right. I and I was like, hey man, easy. And they were like, really, Van? Nobody here can. I'm like, yeah, but it just stirs my soul. Easy, bro. Go easy. Man. Right. And, easy. and people don't easy. understand. Like, relax, dog. That, you know, they may, you may say those things, um, you know, privately to your friends, but I always feel like if you, if you can, if that's a continued practice and nobody checks you, you're going to say it. It's only eventual before you say it in the wrong environment. Yeah, I'm trying to help you. Exactly. So, so uh, that age the best. And there's something else. I couldn't figure out whether slut shaming aged the best or were the worst. Mm. That is such a, you know what? I'm going to say, even though it is more called out now, I still think it ages pretty well. Right. Yeah. I still, yeah. you know, if, if we're going by percentages, it's it's certainly much more pushback when, when this incident happened, because yes, uh, you know, what we're talking about is that the whole reason that Randy winds up in the situation that he's in and the girl accuses the two boys of rape is because they literally slut-shamed her walking down the hall. In front of the whole school. Yeah, for in front of the whole school. And they ignored her, and then Naaman had to get his joke off about he had 50 cents, so he next. And then that is what led to the young lady going to going to tell. But I, I gotta, uh, I'm gonna lean toward that one. That one still ages well. I still think it works. Mm. Yeah. Now, what about the storyline of, in this era of Me Too, of a fabricated uh, rape allegation? Mm. How does that age? Ooh. Well, see, the thing is, I guess because they're generally so rare, rare. that part doesn't. However, you know, the flip side of it, uh, to your point, is that most of these accusations are always treated like lies, right? So right. it kind of, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure what category to put that in. But maybe, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I would have to say statistically, false rape, rape a a allegations age the worst because, like, right. they just don't happen uh, as often as people like to think that they do. Um, and most of that is just the perception of everybody tends to think that every woman is lying when they bring those forth. Uh, for me, what aged the best, that whole church scene aged the best. Beautifully. The open, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Can I preach? <laughs> right? Can I preach it like I feel it? <laughs> All of that aged the best. The 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 two-step, um, the fact that Carcetti being the only white man in that church could not stay on beat. That ages incredibly well. Right. <laughs> like mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, the black church experience is undefeated and ages extremely well. Um uh, do you get excited? Do you get excited when you see white people dance competently? Uh, you know, Be honest. I, I'll tell you where it's definitely um, a judgment-free zone with me, especially when it uh, when it comes to white people and dancing. I can, I am I defy the stereotype, man. I can't dance. You can't dance. No, nope. can't dance. So I I cannot throw this stone from my glass house. Like I I can stay on beat though. I can't do right. that. But there are some times where you see white people dancing to certain songs and you just like, well, what beat are you following? Right. I don't get it. Uh, but like, it, there's still a thing in me, and I, I'm sure it's racist, but like, when I see a, like, it's kind of, when I see a white dude dancing, I remember I, know, I went to see Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know if y'all know, but there's a part in Wolf of Wall Street where DiCaprio is fucking cutting up. When he's at his wedding, have you seen that? I did. I have. When seen he, when he, is, when the, he, I'm like, oh shit, Leo. Okay, and like, and <laughs> my girl looks at me. She's like, just on his balls right now, and I'm like, just because I'm not expecting that. So it, like, I say that to say, if if there's ever a politician that ever goes into a church and they and they and they're like, uh, ah, yeah, uh, right, right, yeah. they hitting that one two clap, they on they beat. hitting that one two clap, they done, it's over. You got the like, it's you know, they you go, got you the job, get, you right? Go, you go, you got the job, and it's, we shouldn't be like that because not we shouldn't be like that, but we are. So we, we're gonna it, it give good to white see. people more credit for dancing. Uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, <laughs> but for some reason we do. We do. Um. All right. What also aged the best is uh, you mentioned that scene when uh, Randy was doing the the field work for Carcetti's campaign. Well, when uh, one of the workers rolled up on Cuddy and asked him about voting, and he was like, "I can't vote." So, lack of voting rights mm. for those with felonies definitely aged well. Because uh, even right. in the situation in Florida, where they voted on allowing allowing those who have felony convictions to vote, they then hit them with the modern day poll tax of uh, not. Paying, if you pay didn't pay your, your restitution, 
If you didn't pay your restitution yeah. fees, which they also figured out a way to make sure they couldn't find out what those fees are, but a story for another day. So um, for for us, those that that's what aged the best. What aged the worst? Well, I asked you mine. Like I was oh, asking you. That yeah, was yeah, the, yeah, fa- so, yeah. the, the false rape, right. rape allega- uh, allegations. Does that age? And, and and the slut shaming. Both and of those things. Kind yeah, of the they could. I mean, I, you know, maybe our our listeners might disagree, but I, I feel like slut shaming is still kind of a thing that still plays well. Um, you know, we I, we actually we just kind of recently uh, got some of that with Meg The Stallion in that situation because there's yeah, a lot of people sure. feel like she doesn't deserve any sympathy because of her music. Um, right. which is a, a form of slut shading. So for me, what aged the worst, I like to think. Now, granted, I, it's been a long time since I've been in uh, somebody's somebody uh, black who is over, I'm going to say, say about 68 years old, all right? It's I know been, what you're about to say, and you're wrong. The plastic on the couch? It, it, it's, it's still a still, thing, it's still, man? It's still a no. thing, yeah. yeah. Dog! You gotta yeah, be kidding me. Oh. Yeah, it's still a thing. It's still a thing. I was surprised that Delonda had it though. Because she, she don't seem young. like she's old. She too old. She old enough to have it. I was but, like, maybe that was uh, maybe it's how that was her mama place or something like that. But I'm surprised that she has it. But no, it's still a thing. But in a way, we shouldn't be surprised because what also I have on my list of what aged the worst is all of the de- all of the decor in Delonda's house. Like right. her her house is decorated as somebody who um, I know she obviously bring her backstory. She doesn't doesn't have a lot, or didn't come from a lot rather. But she literally went into the furniture store and got all the gaudy shit and put it all in her place just so she could give the appearance of I I got a little money, right? So right. all this shit is like it's kind of like tacky hood fabulous, right? right. Like that was yeah. what she was going for. So from that standpoint, the plastic on the couch is not a surprise at all. Right, like that it's she true. would have that. But I thought the decor in her house age terribly because I'm like who the fuck like what, what's going on here just a bunch of shit in there and she over furnished it like today yeah. the thing is like being a little minimalist right right she got every every corner is filled with some shit that looks like it's out of place so yep. on top of a horrible human being and an awful mother she's also terrible at interior design just uh, to add that in. also with with age poorly uh non-wireless headphones Man, I saw Cuddy with him. And I say this as we both have on wireless ones right now. But running I don't run with, with them, wireless. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't run with wireless. I don't run with them. Know? Yeah. This is just for purpose of production only. So that didn't age so well. Um, all right. When it comes to file this away for later, Van, what do you have? Uh, Randy snitching. Yeah. The degree. I keep saying this. All of that is a huge file this away for later for me. Randy snitching is the biggest one. The most obvious one uh, of this particular uh, episode. Also, Spider's absence from the gym into what you know happens with Spider and who Spider becomes is like a big storyline. Cuddy's situation with Spider actually goes further to determine what Spider becomes than anything else. Right. I mean, it is. It's amazing about how much of a of a bad foreshadowing that that becomes for him. Uh, yeah. Because it looked like for a minute that he was on a particular path and now with all that's happened that it takes another direction. Um, was this the episode that Bubs got beat up? Did he get beat up in this one? Yes. Okay. This is the, he, for the first time. Okay, yep, for the first time. So an- another good file this away for later was Bubs getting beat up trying to save Sherrod. Um, that's the file this away for later moment uh, for Bubs big time. Also, uh, Clay Davis screwing over Carcetti. Yes. That's a big file that's away for later. Um, even though they all, they had a little jokey jokes, the mm-hmm. shit comes back as it as it often does when you um, kind of screw over people, even on the wire, even in TV land. Uh, now for a little trivia, as I mentioned, um, you said at the top of the show, you noted the fact that this was very much about the race. It was very p- politically heavy in that sense, but there was a reason for that. So as I told you all before, after season three, that was supposed to be the end of The Wire. So in lieu of um, developing a season four, what David Simon did is he went to HBO and uh, who had every intention of not bringing the show back. He went to HBO and he said, I need a spinoff. Give me a spinoff. And his spinoff was going to be one based off Carcetti, Tony Gray and Royce and their run for mayor. 
And he'd already basically written it and had it all plotted out. And that was, of course, it would feature some characters from The Wire. And when that didn't happen and they decided to come on with um, a season four and, and then ultimately a season five, he they had to go back for season four and everything he'd written for this spinoff, they had to cram into season four. And in ah. particularly this show... Uh, this particular episode, that's why it was so race heavy because that was supposed to be an entirely different show. And mm. they had to come back, squeeze it all in. So if it feels like this is like such a kind of politically heavy show, that is the explanation for that. Um, all right, ma'am, we finally reached the moment of truth here. Who do you think won the episode? I got a tie. A tie? Okay, we haven't had, I don't think we've had one of those since like season one, but who's, who's it between? Because this show is about winning to me, winning the race to me, it's a tie between Carcetti and Marlo. Oh, okay. Marlo, Marlo had a clear victory over the police, played that fucking fiddle like a heart from hell. And then Carcetti won his mayoral race. So it's hard for me to look on, against all odds, like Pac. So, so I would say it was a tie between those guys. Yeah, I mean, because Carcetti was literally a winner. Uh, it is kind of difficult to... To look at him and, and and say, like, yeah, how could he not, you know, win this particular uh, episode? But Marlo's a good one because, you know, not only does he pull a fast one on the police. I mean, the fact is he got Omar in jail. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he's... Yeah, he won a bunch. Yeah, he won a bunch. I mean, he's, he's pulled off two kind of major capers. And, you know, especially against Omar, who is somebody who's been extremely you know, kind of uh, elusive. Uh, For me, the winner of this episode uh, was Daquan. And I picked him because I think, you know, because these moments of humanity that he experiences for prayers, the relationship that he's developing with prayers overall is such a winning relationship for him. And even though there are some other things that happen, is that at this point in his life, Daquan needs somebody like prayers who cares about him in a way that's, that still allows him not just to have his humanity, humanity, but his dignity is that he's mm. trying to give Daquan dignity, like the dignity mm. of being clean, the dignity yeah. of not necessarily like everybody knows what the deal is. Uh, his classmates, his peers, they don't necessarily talk about it with him, but they use it to ridicule, ridicule him about it when it suits them. Right. Prez does not necessarily have conversations with him about what he's going through. He's just providing it in a way so that Daquan doesn't have to go through the humiliation of actually saying what's happening to him, that he can just accept his um, gestures and they don't even have to talk about the reason why he isn't clean every day. Right. And right. and it allows yeah. him to not just have um, dignity, but discretion and also privacy. So I, to me, that that relationship, seeing how it is matured, um, is maturing, is 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 a win. I think for both of them, not just for Daquan, but also a win for Prez, who, you know, let's be honest, when he, you know, he kind of looked at being a school teacher, I wouldn't say as an afterthought, but I think it, it's a much bigger and much more important and crucial job than he probably even realized it was going to be coming in. So mm, that's true. Yeah, so it's good for both of them. The idea that a small thing can change a life. Always very powerful. Anyway, that's going to do it for us as we wrap up episode six, Margin of Error. We'll be back for episode seven and a lot of things that happened there. Um, I got a good observation that I I didn't realize until I watched uh, episode seven that I can't wait to share with you guys. Anyway, keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We'll see y'all next time. 